You know who I am just a hundred thousand percent obsessed with lately? Who? Lizzo. Oh, my God. Like, you, me, the world. I know, everyone is. But I just, when I need to, like, this is going to sound darker than I mean it to, but when I need to, like, love myself and, like, amp myself up and feel good. That's not dark. That's real. True. But her songs, I'm just like, fuck yes. I am the baddest bitch around. And I did that because of me. Exactly. And I just, ah, I love her message of self-love. Her talent is incredible. And all her songs are bops. So I stand Lizzo. It's true. And I really want to take a DNA test. And there better be a line that tells me how much of a percent of that bitch I am. It's like, ooh, 4%. And I'm like... 4% that bitch. Well, I'm going to take that as a positive thing. I don't know how, but yep. Okay, bye. No, it's it's forty eight percent a bitch and just four percent <laughs> that bitch. So, okay, bye. Guess it just depends on uh, whose conversations I've been in. And twenty one percent Northern Italian would be like, "This is." I knew I should not have ordered a DNA test from Amazon. This is just a lot. <laughs> Honestly, though. I just, there is an opportunity for her to partner with, like, Ancestry.com or 23andMe for a commercial. Yeah, I know, but what if you're, like, a grandmother and you, oh, you were talking about a commercial. I thought you were talking about on their actual product. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) It actually is just an audio (laughs) playing whenever you open your box for your results. Now, love Lizzo. She's yes. amazing. She really is. This is not a music podcast, although I do sing very often in it. You do. But hi, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we love Lizzo. On a completely unrelated side note, though, that I'm just going to shoehorn in here, let me tell you about this thing that happened this afternoon when I'm walking Max. <laughs> Okay, so, that is really a 180, but okay. I know. Um, Lizzo came out. She just popped out of the bushes and was like, hey! And I was like, oh my god, Lizzo. No. So I'm walking, Max. I'm walking by my uh, apartment building. I'm on the ground floor, obviously, because I'm on the sidewalk. You don't take Max on walks on the roof? <laughs> you know, no, I don't. Not not anymore. Not after last time. Uh, no, so I'm walking on the sidewalk. I'm walking past um, the, you know, a set of balconies, and at this exact moment, someone on the fourth floor decides it's a great time to water their plants, but also (laughs) apparently not pay attention to what they're doing and just be distracted, because, you know, I'm walking by and just water dumps on me, and I'm like, what the fuck? Like a lot? So I look, like, um... A fair sprinkling. Not like I was soaked, but I was wet. (laughs) And so I look up to like, what the shit just happened? And I can see this hand over the edge with a little like green plastic watering can that's about half of it is just missing and pouring down. And I'm like, are are you, are you on the phone? Are you, are you, pay attention. (laughs) There are people down here who don't want your 
plant water on them. <laughs> I just want to walk my dog. Hey, excuse me. Do, do you know how to water plants? <laughs> You're doing it wrong. <laughs> See, but I'm sure if I had shouted something like, hey, they might have gotten scared and dropped the whole water can and killed me. So who knows? Oh, my God. That, I will say, I think about that because I have a couple of plants that are towards the edge. And so water does drip down. And like your neighbor, I'm on the fourth floor. So hopefully I'm not watering people. I mean, I guess my only piece of advice is if you are and someone shouts at you to stop, just hold on to that watering can. Guess so. (laughs) Don't drop it. So can you believe this is episode 75? No, I can't. We are... 25 away from 100. Yay, Matt! Yeah, we're going to throw a party. And we're 25 since episode 50. Which is weird, because I feel like episode 50 was only a couple weeks ago, and it definitely was six months ago. Yeah, it's really been that long. This year is absolutely flying. Like, it just, every moment of every day is so fast, and why won't the world just slow down? It, It technically is, but... You know, on like a geological time frame, but that doesn't help us at all. It does. I will say, I did read something interesting about like, you know, as you get older, it feels like years go by faster and faster. And it's because when you're young, your frame of reference for the time is, you know, you're 10. A year going by is a tenth of your life. That's like a big chunk of your experiences and stuff. And especially if you're looking at the what you remember. So basically like five and on. That's like a fifth of your life, basically. But when you're 30, it's just a much smaller percentage. You have a lot more um, that you've, like, remembered and grown on. So it just does not feel as long. I don't know if I should be in awe or really depressed right now. (laughs) Um, Both. It's called being alive. (laughs) True. The older you get... The quicker time goes, because the less significant every year is. That's what I just heard. No, just kidding. <laughs> okay. Well, shit. Uh, yeah, time keeps on slipping. We're all uh, just in a roller coaster that has no tracks hurtling towards the void, so. You don't know what tomorrow holds. No, I don't mean the years are insignificant, but they do just keep going by faster and faster, and I've never thought about it from that perspective. So that is pretty cool, but also still kind of depressing. Yeah. I, I can't even lie about that. It's like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially as one of these uh, over 30s. Thanks for slipping that in. Thanks for picking that age. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. You it's couldn't just have an said age something that we're both like, near. You couldn't have said something like 60, so it feels like we're still young and youthful. And instead, you had to be like, you know, the age we're at... You know, we have less to remember. No, more to remember. Yeah, it's because um, we're not spry and youthful anymore. We're decrepit millennials. But (laughs) also, you could look at it from like a romanticized view where you're like, oh my gosh, my story just keeps getting longer and longer. It's true, you're just adding chapters. As you hurdle towards the last chapter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Just take it back to the darkness. (laughs) This is what happens when we're both just reading a lot of Stephen King. That's so true. Also, guys, I, sorry, I can't shut up about Stephen King. I love him. Like It's it's true. I feel like it's <laughs> your topic of the last three episodes. Probably. I should probably stop. Sorry, guys. 
<laughs> it's probably because it is a 65,000 page book, so it's just taken you this long to get through, I don't know what, three chapters? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> <laughs> I have like, I have this problem of starting multiple books at the same time. So right now I'm reading three, uh, two Stephen King and one by someone, I, I can't remember the author's name, but I read a lot of books. I, I start um, a lot of books. Let me fix that. I start yeah. a lot of books. So I actually tried reading a book today. And by reading, <laughs> I mean listening because it's an audio book. I love I you like, I tried reading a book today, period. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it, I had to stop after like three sentences because the narrator for this audio book, she was so boring. <laughs> I mean, literally, I'm sitting like, ooh, yeah, I've wanted to read this book for a while. I hit play, and it's just like, it was at that point in my life when I realized I was fictional. And I was like, oh, my <laughs> God, have I been listening to this for an hour already? Or, oh, nope, two seconds, got it. Yeah, it's, when you do an audiobook, it really is heavily influenced by who is doing the reading. If you can't get into their voice and their inflections, it's hard. Yeah, but so I'm just like, okay, I'm gonna wait till I have a free moment and just read the paper copy. Totally. Well, if you haven't checked out our Patreon yet, hop on over, check it out. We're now up to quite a few Bottle Talk episodes. We've got like over 30 Martyr Minis out there, as well as sending over, you know, handwritten letters if you pick that tier, our Blood and Wine stickers. Patreon is where you guys support us and it's so so greatly appreciated and we want to be able to give you all the extra content we can so that's where it's at so hop on over and check it out if you haven't absolutely and while you're doing that make sure to subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice we are on uh, basically anywhere you can find a podcast you can find us there so if there's the option to subscribe hit that button and you'll be notified every time we release a new episode on tuesday yes so our topic for today's episode is actually one that was a fan suggestion. Someone reached out to us, suggested it, and I was like, yes, done, we're doing it. That's creepy as shit. I love it. And that topic is asylums. Which have always given me the heebie-jeebies. Yes. I mean, do you remember the asylum in Norman near OU? I do. And there would be like patients that would escape. Or we always heard. Yes. Well, I'm always wondering if those were just, like, rumors that people would tell. But in Norman, there's, uh, it's like Griffin Memorial Hospital or something. It's right across the street from the Walmart I used to shop at. It's the bad Walmart, but it's the cheap one, so. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right across the gates. And not only is it a um, psychiatric hospital, it's one that's, like, half abandoned. And right. to me, that's what's creepy about it, because they have the old, not really gothic-style buildings, but that's what they remind me of, that right. are, like, abandoned, well, and were built in, like, the 20s or something, and they use other facilities on their, like, big hospital campus, but these old ones, the creepiest-looking buildings you've ever seen, are, of course, abandoned, and I don't believe in ghosts, but they're absolutely haunted. Yeah, it's probably the Cherokee Gothic style, which is the same style that the OU campus is built in. Oh, uh, that would make sense. That's just a guess. But um, also, another contributing factor to the creepiness of this topic 
if any of y'all are fans of American Horror Story, Season 2 is American Horror Story Asylum. And in my professional opinion, it is by far the creepiest season. And so the scariest season. And I hate it. I love it. But I absolutely hate it. I've actually been re-watching it for the same reasons. It's like the best season that there is, but it creeps me out so much. So I watch it in little doses. Fair. I feel like American Horror Story is not a show to binge watch. It's just a lot. It is difficult to binge watch it. And I've binge watched a lot of pretty creepy shit. But for some reason, American Horror Story, I'm like, okay, I need a break because I'm legitimately creeped out. Yeah. But yes, our topic for today is asylums and the creepy, the criminal, the fucked up shit that happens within their walls. And I will say, as a side note, nothing against like modern day psychiatric hospitals. No. Absolutely. I mean, hospitals that focus on uh, treating and working with people suffering from mental illness is amazing and something we need more of honestly but looking at the past of some of these places especially in the early 20th century in the united states there is some dark shit that went on absolutely and just the way we as humans were going about trying to understand mental illness was so messed up because some of the things that were considered a mental illness or that sent people to asylums are ridiculous everyday things. So um, I know I'll dive a little bit deeper in my case into some of these details, but it's just not, it, it was not, they weren't there yet. They were doing a lot of experimentation. All of it is pretty much now seen as like horrible. Yeah. Well, I mean, they'd throw people in. They'd be like, oh my God, this woman, she enjoys sex. Throw her in the asylum. She's crazy. And she's like, hello, I'm actually fine, but all right. And exactly. then she would develop severe mental illness from the inhumane and abusive conditions in there. But there you go. And like Tyler was saying, psychiatric hospitals today do some phenomenal things for people. And it's something that if you need to go there, go. Like nothing against them. But asylums at the beginning were pretty fucked up. So I'm really glad uh, things have improved. Agreed. But before we jump into our cases... I have been saying it for the past, like, I don't know, three hours, but dear God, I need my wine. I'm really ready for mine as well, so tell me what one you're going to drink tonight. The wine I'm drinking tonight is the 2015 Diosares Rioja Crianza. Oh my gosh, you did a Rioja. I love Riojas. So, again, if y'all did not know this, if you aren't listening to our Bottle Talk episodes, uh, Rioja is generally a Tempranillo from the Rioja region of Spain. Sometimes it's mixed with uh, things like Grenache, but um, Rioja is not a grape. Similar to how, like, Bordeaux isn't a grape, it's a region, and, like, Chianti isn't a grape, it's a region. Really did not know that until, like, two weeks ago, but here we are. Here we are. A little bit of background on the Tempranillo grape. Tempranillo, as a side note, is my absolute favorite wine, and I just think it goes so great with everything. That's so good. But the Tempranillo, it is a red grape from Spain, and it produces a wide variety of wine styles in regions around the country. Tempranillo wine typically features a pretty medium acidity, pretty medium tannins, and a very dark red color. 
young, unoaked versions of it will be pretty pleasantly fruity with flavors of red fruits and jam. More complex versions, though, uh, ones that are aged in oak, oftentimes American oak, though sometimes French, um, those are going to have more flavors of vanilla, toast, and uh, almost meaty note. Some of that umami going on. Oh, yeah. So in Spain's famed Rioja region, Tempranillo is sometimes blended with Garnacha or Grenache grapes. And in Navarra, which is uh, an area near the French border, Tempranillo may be mixed with Bordeaux grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. And it produces very complex and robust reds that kind of transcend the border of France and Spain. So basically, the wine is representative of Andorra. It's not. Andorra does not have wine. It is very small. It might have wine. I don't know. I don't know, but I want to try one of these wines because that sounds like two of my favorite regions had a baby. Right? And And basically they did. It's a wine baby, and I need that wine baby in my belly. Same. So Tempranillo is one of those grapes that goes by many different local names. It may be called Abundante, Sensibel, Tinto de Madrid, Tinta del País, Tinta de Toro, Tinto Fino, or Ul de Yebre. Those are all just other names for the Tempranillo grape. That was a lot. <laughs> I didn't it, realize it, it had that many. <laughs> Me neither. So I remember finding out, mm, I did a wine, I don't know, an amount of episodes ago that was a Tinto grape. And I was very confused because half the things I read were talking about the Tinto grape. Half of them would just start talking about Tempranillo. And I was like, what the hell grape is this? It's a Tempranillo. It's all the same. All the same. So this wine in particular, the Diosares Rioja Crianza, it's a 100% Tempranillo grape. And it's been aged for 12 months in French oak barrels. The berry aromas in it are very fiery and scratchy at first. But they then break down and become suggestive of, like, olive. It has pretty high acidity and not a ton of body, and this creates a crispness. But it also has the flavors of tart plum and cranberry that just really work well with that crispness. Um, It's fairly loud acidity is maintained on a kind of raw finish. So I want it in my body so bad. Can I see what the label looks like? It has this, like, almost... I love it. I don't know, Baroque-looking floral seal on yeah. it. I don't know. I'm not the art history major here. But, and it's, on the background, it's just a white label with some pretty, like, heavy, stark black font. Yeah. Um, I love it. It's I pretty. Love it. Also, uh, some dude named Robert Parker gave it 90 points. Robert likes it. Robert says it's good and says you should drink it. I agree with him. Maybe. I haven't had it yet, but I know I will agree with him. So I'm going to get into this wine. It is a cork. It's not a bottle cap, whatever they're called. Screw top. Screw top. <laughs> Those things. A bottle it's not cap. a bottle cap either. It's not a bottle cap. <laughs> um, but also this wine, I got it from Total Wine for like 14 bucks or something. Nice. So. Not too shabby. Um, Tell me about the wine that you are going to be drinking today. Yes. Okay. 
So the wine that I'm going to be drinking today is the 2016 Tribunal Red Blend from the north coast of California. And this is one from Trader Joe's. It's $10. And it's a red blend. And the story of this wine is just literally all about that blend. The winemaker there at Tribunal, he his judgment is like really put to the test to determine the most delectable red varieties such as Zinfandel. You're like, that's a hefty glass. You did need that wine, didn't you? You you weren't yes. you weren't joking. I was about twenty minutes away from putting a needle in my arm and just putting it, the wine in directly that way. It'd probably kill me, but you know. You'd be drunk doing it. Maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Don't ever do that. Don't directly put wine in your veins. Also, don't uh, drink out of your ass like a frat boy. (laughs) You're not a frat boy. You're a grown adult. Whoever, listener, you might be a frat boy. But regardless, don't drink out of your ass. Or as it's known in some circles, butt chugging. That is so fucked up. (laughs) You will die. Yes. Okay. So back to these delectable red varieties that the winemaker's picking. So he's... Yes. <laughs> not butt chugging. Not butt chugging. So they're looking for varieties such as Zinfandel, Syrah, Merlot, Petite Syrah, Barbera, Grenache, and Petite Verdot in God. just the right proportions. So literally when I said the story of this wine is the blend, I'm not kidding. Fair. So the verdict of this wine is a bold and... Guilty. (laughs) Well, it is a tribunal. Um, It's bold and full-bodied. It's full of juicy, ripe fruit with a finish that lasts for days. Um... (laughs) I'm sorry. I was actually picturing a wine finish. You, like, wake up the next day and you're like, Jesus Christ, I can still taste it. You're having dinner... Two days later, and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'm, d- I'm done with the tribunal wine. It's still lingering. <laughs> it's like the onion or the uh, garlic of wines. It just sticks around. Oh, I was, in my mind was going a complete different direction and going like, it's the permanent brow makeup of wine. No, I don't know. No, no. But so it's got a nice long finish. Um, the aromas are of black cherry and prunes with plenty of vanilla and chocolate. It really does smell like a very rich zen. Um, so it has that sweet scent. And then it's a big, rich wine with a soft, smooth mouthfeel and lots of oak influence. As far as what you should eat this with. <laughs> Is it a fucking bacon cheeseburger? <laughs> No, you, I'm laughing because eat this wine with <laughs> oh, like, a fork and knife, maybe a spoon. <laughs> so since this wine is fruit forward, you can have it alone. It's a really good wine to just drink alone, which is how I'm having it tonight. Or you pair it with a really good olive tempanade and a crostini. You can also pair it with spicy pulled pork, a spicy chicken, Um, with polenta or other dishes that are rich with tomato and spice. Plus, it's the perfect one to have on hand for grilling season, which we're getting, I mean, we're still in grilling season, definitely here in Texas, because of football, but definitely... It still hasn't gotten below 90 yet, so... But this makes a really great companion for a grilled steak or a juicy burger. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> fucking cheeseburger wine. I know. I love it. It's also 15.1% alcohol. Oh. Um, that ABV is high up there. But before I open this, I want to show you the label because it's got like animals dressed up as people, like a cat and a dog and a unicorn, and they're in court. I mean, I've been to that court. And they're drinking. They're all that little cat in the picture being convicted. And the unicorn has on glasses. They look really cool. But I want to read the back of the label. Okay, but before you jump into that, I just had one thing to say about the tasting note. You mentioned it uh, pairs really well with an olive tamponade on a crostini. And my first thought was like, ooh, that sounds so good. What do I have that could be like that? And it would literally be an olive out of the jar on a fucking Keebler Club club cracker. (laughs) And that sounds like the saddest, grossest, and or best, we'll see. Might have it after a bottle of wine. But yeah, so I'm not going to have the poor millennial version of olive tamponade on Christini. Honestly, it could be really good. It will be after you have a bottle. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, But yes, so read the back to me. Okay, so on the back, it says, Delightful, said fox. Superb, said unicorn. Glorious, said dog. To this, Judge Cat rose his glass and said, All shall be free and great wine will be served. So that's literally not, not how the court system works, but it does for Judge Cat. But honestly, that's the perfect bottle because not only do you have a bottle of wine to drink after your kids go to bed, but you have a bedtime story right there. You could be like, okay, kids, lay down. The cat said meow and all we all get wine. Good night. Or whatever you just read. That was basically it. The cat was like, okay, well, I love this wine. I don't even remember what you're here for. So like, you're off. Like, it's fine. I, it was murder in the first degree. But would you like some wine? That's uh, what the cat said. Uh, y- yes, please. I know, like, literally, if you say no, you'll probably get sent to jail, so... Um, I mean, that's how it works in my house. This is also a cork. I have been pinching myself a lot on my corkscrew lately. Like, it's... I feel like I should know how to open a bottle of wine at this point. Ooh, that was a good pop. That was a good pop. Are you using your Game of Thrones glass? Yeah, I need to do dishes, but also I felt like it had been a while since I'd used it. So um, the aromas of this one are so chocolatey and vanilla that it's just like it immediately hit my nose before I even stuck my nose in it to smell. See, mine, I really see what they mean by the berry aromas being like fiery and scratchy because they're very intense and almost like sharp in your nose. Oh, Oh my god, it smells so good. Okay, let's cheers. Yes, let's do it. Here goes, um, here's here's to wine. To wine. Here's to wine. Cheers. Cheers. Alright, I can see that you're singing praises to your wine. Tell me about it. Yeah, I just had an out-of-body experience. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It is so good. I definitely get that tart cranberry flavor in it. But I also, when I first tasted it, the two flavors that popped into my mind were like fresh blueberries and pine, which is not a taste I usually associate with wine. Interesting, yeah. Like the woody wines, I often think of more oak or more like, I don't know, walnut maybe. But it had that, I don't know, it has a very 
tart, woody flavor, which makes me think pine. Um, it is super good. Definitely higher on the acid than a typical Tempranillo, but I'm going to drink this whole bottle in the next, you know, hour, like I always do, but... Basically. Well, this one is very good. It's fruit forward for sure. So I think if you are a cab or a Zen drinker, you would like this one. But also if you are new to the world of red wines and you're not sure you want something harsh, this would be a really great full-bodied introduction because it's very smooth. The tannins do not bite at all. It's fruity. It is a little sweet. Um, sweeter than I thought it would be, but it's a really good wine. I can see why this would be great with um, grilled meats or like I'm drinking it just alone. Like it doesn't need food. It has all of the flavor there in, in the glass. So, But if you want to put an olive on a Ritz cracker, go for it. Absolutely go for it. Or just eat the olives. I like God, olives. God, I love olives. They're so good. Except black olives. They're awful. They don't taste good. But um, recommend this. Again, $10 at Trader Joe's. Totally a steal. Absolutely. I'm excited to drink that wine. I don't know. We have our wine. We have our topic. I still have Lizzo stuck in my head. So that means it's time to jump into our cases. It's time. So the case that I'm going to be talking about today is the case of the Creedmoor Asylum. Do, 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 do. I don't know. Creepy music, right? Um, what's the uh, American Horror Story? <laughs> you know. Basically. <laughs> those things. Okay. Uh, but yes. Now so that's stuck the, in my head. Thank you. Well, uh, a Lizzo remix of American Horror Story. Love it. Side note before I jump into my sources. How much do you love the theme song of the current season 1984 where it's like very synthy very 80s it i love it i i absolutely love it if it's on spotify i would like totally play it in my car so anyways the sources i used for this case were an article from the new york times called fear and brutality in a creedmoor ward by philip shannon and this was an article written back in 1984 and it was like in their archived list for the New York Times. It's really cool. An article from Abandoned NYC called Inside Creedmoor State Hospitals Building 25 by Will Ellis. The Creedmoor State Hospital page on the Asylum Project's website. And then an article from the lineup called Five Insane Asylums You Never Want to Find Yourself Locked Up In by Audrey Webster, which First off, I'm going to say, I don't want to be locked up in anywhere. I don't want to be locked up in a spa. The locking okay, part? Well, kind of creepy. Yeah. yeah, no, don't lock me anywhere. Unless it's... No, actually, no. I can't think of anything, any place I want to be involuntarily locked in. Same. Doesn't even matter if it's a wine cellar. It would be dark. I would be very scared. <laughs> no, I hate that. There would, I imagine, just be snakes everywhere. Lights go out, snakes come out. Um, Lights out, snakes out. I know. Uh, <laughs> God, I need that on a t-shirt. Lights out, snakes out. Lights out, snakes out. <laughs> oh, God. What if we did an episode that was snake murders? Like, I don't know. like Anaconda? I mean, that, that's a <laughs> no. fictional movie, but... 
<laughs> what? I thought that was a documentary. Next, you're going to tell me Snakes on a Plane isn't based on a true story. Think about it. Snakes are all, like, in the inner wirings of uh, the plane, and then the oxygen masks come down, but it's a fucking snake. But, like, also, land the plane. Like, be like, oh, shit, there's a... Like, I feel like one snake on the plane that's not someone's emotional support snake <laughs> is enough to, like, be like, oh, shit, we should land. You mean they're ESS? <laughs> yes. <laughs> This is Billy. He helps me with my anxiety. And I'd be like, he's giving me anxiety. You're holding a snake. <laughs> he's like petting a python. Mm-hmm. And the snake is just staring at you. Because, you know, they don't blink. And, like, his tongue's... He's smelling you with his tongue. Ugh. Honestly, some snakes are cute. I'm sorry. Snake and cute don't belong in the same sentence. Uh, there are some that are cute. Do I ever want to touch one? No. If one was looking at me... I would open the emergency door and just get sucked out and be like, falling to death is better. (laughs) Bye. Than a snake looking at me. (laughs) Okay, tell me about your asylum. Yes, uh, not snakes on a plane or snakes in an asylum, just the asylum. The Creedmoor Asylum was founded in 1912 as the farm colony of Brooklyn State Hospital, and it was one of hundreds of similar psychiatric wards that was established around the turn of the 20th century. And the crazy thing about this is they put it out here because it's in this rural farm area. It's going to be something that's useful for all the rural farm folk who live in the area of Queens, New York. (laughs) Oh yeah, you know, like rural Queens, you know. You know, it's (laughs) It's literally on Jamaica Bay, so, like, I don't know, next to LaGuardia, I guess. But that's the only thing I know that's on Jamaica Bay. But, like, that's not rural. (laughs) I mean, I guess in 1912 it was. Yeah. But in 1912, New York was already a city of, like, three million people or something. So I was like, y'all did not think that ahead. Put it on, like, I don't know. Go upstate. Montauk or something. I don't know, something where people don't actually live. Sorry to everyone who lives in Montauk. I was like, people still live on Long Island. It's definitely still a city. (laughs) But it's a little bit more rural than Queens, which is technically on Long Island, regardless. Have you ever Um, even been to Long Island? No. I've been to Rockaway. That's on Long Island. Okay, that is true. I went there with you. I know, where you took, like, the best picture ever (laughs) of you. And then I also took the worst picture ever. (laughs) That was the one I was talking about. Oh. <laughs> we are in the background with just no jaw. I know. The face I'm making is just horrible. It's still my contact uh, profile picture for you when you call. I know. Thanks for that, by the way. <laughs> Family. Um, anyway, so when the hospital opened, it had 32 patients, and they worked on the farmland in the area as part of their treatment and to also kind of ease the expense of the room and board. These are people who have been rejected by mainstream society and sent from these urban areas into these more rural country areas where the idea was that the fresh air, the closeness to nature, and the healing power of work would be their best bet for rehabilitation. Which, honestly, as much as, like, that's an old-ass idea... It's kind of also a really modern idea. I mean, you can see with um, 
patients in facilities, with uh, people that are serving time in prison, having a job and that like work and sense of purpose and routine is hugely beneficial. It so, is. Ahead of your time in that one way. Yes. Everything else is garbage. So as the 20th century progressed and went on, asylums across the country became overrun with patients and many of the institutions just were super understaffed and really underfunded because what the u.s underfunding on mental health say it ain't so the fact that that's still an issue like makes my stomach churn right now because yeah yeah you're saying it about then saying it about now yeah and for a lot of these patients living conditions were dire And patient abuse and neglect happened all the time. By 1918, so just six years after they opened, with 32 people, their census had grown to 150. And they were housed in these abandoned National Guard barracks that were on the site of the hospital. By 1959, so 40 years later, the hospital housed 7,000 patients. Oh my gosh. And they started with 32. And it was 32. And it was overcrowded at like 150. Yeah. I mean, they built other buildings on it. And um, one of them is like a 17 story tower that is still there today and just looks really imposing and terrifying. But 7,000 people living in one place. That's too many people. That is. Let alone people that need like attention and focus and doctors and like healing people. So you're telling me at any given moment, there's like 15,000 people or more in this place. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's a lot. And because of overcrowding, the hospital came under scrutiny in the forties after a dysentery outbreak happened. And it was blamed on the unsanitary living conditions at the hospital. Also, during the mid-20th century, there was just a lot of news and articles that came out about this place. One New York Times article told the story of a 26-year-old German man who had a foot-long beard and had been caught living as a hermit in the woods near Creedmoor in 1931. Like, he'd escaped into the woods nearby and just was living there alone. No one was really looking for him. And one thing to note the article did mention that I thought was really nice of them is that when the police found him, and they did arrest him, but they made him a steak dinner because he'd been, like, living out in the woods for so long. I'm glad they fed him. That's Feeding him's one thing, but the fact that they're like, oh my god, let's give him something nice. Let's make him a steak dinner in the 30s. Because that's, like, the middle of the Great Depression. That is really nice. An article from 1953 reported two mentally ill patients overpowering an attendant and escaping Creedmoor. They then were able to avoid capture despite a 13-state-wide police alarm. 13 states? 13 states in the area were like, look out for these two people. They escaped. And uh, the two were never found. Ever? No. Oh my gosh, that's really creepy, actually. I know, they just escaped. Which, again, things like that creep the shit out of me, because this is 1953 in Queens, New York City. Like, at this point, they're in the middle of suburbia, I guess. 
Well, I mean, people escaping from anywhere, if, if I don't know, prison, jail, most of the places that you escape from are like scary places to escape. Well, I mean, yeah, otherwise it wouldn't be escaping. Well, I'm saying if you're being held captive. You don't escape from work, you leave. <laughs> I mean, Although sometimes some... it feels like you escape. <laughs> I was about to say. Sometimes you get in your car and you're like, come on, start. <laughs> Damn it, start. Sometimes but you what know. you're really wanting is just that bottle of wine sitting at home. And you're like, come on. But, like, literally, sometimes it does feel like escaping, only because you're like, oh my god, they're looking for me for this phone call, but it's 6.30 and I want to go home, and so you sneak out. No, if you're someone who's been kidnapped and you escape, it's different. Like, yes, you're escaping somewhere creepy, but the creepy factor is the place, not that you escaped. When someone escapes from prison, I mean, yes, prison is creepy, but the person escaping from prison is also creepy. So, I mean, you get what I'm saying? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Regardless, things are starting to go to shit. And by 1974, things had completely spiraled out of control. But in 1974, the state ordered an inquiry into an outbreak of crime that was happening on the campus. Because within 20 months, there were three rapes, 22 assaults, 52 fires, 130 burglaries, six instances of suicide, a shooting a riot, and an attempted murder. In 20 months. Oh, months? I don't know why I was picturing years. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah, no, this is... I can't even think of a place that is as comparably dangerous. Yeah. A Black Friday sale at Walmart? Close, maybe. But all of these crimes happening at Creedmore caused the state to investigate all downstate uh, mental hospitals. And... Maybe it's obvious to other people. I've always heard of upstate New York. Never realized people use the term downstate. Me either. Okay, see, I'm not alone. You're not alone. alone. (laughs) You're not alone. So now we jump forward a hot second into the 1980s. And by a hot second, I mean like 10 years. Which, as we discussed earlier, as you get older, will feel like a hot second. It really will. You'll be like, oh my gosh, that feels like a nap. But I don't take naps Mm -hmm. anymore. I'm at the point now where I have to put things on my calendar that are, like, personal life stuff. Like, my work calendar has, make sure to give Max his heartworm meds. Oh, yeah. I mean, welcome to my life for, like, so many years. I feel like that's how you know you're an adult, is when your work calendar becomes literally what you live by. Yep. Like, I am considering being like, okay, so Saturday afternoon I'm going to schedule myself a nap from 1 to 3. Just put it on the calendar so no one interrupts me, no one books over it. Don't book over your own bookings. I am the worst at doing that. I've booked like seven things for this Saturday, and I'm like, I can do all of them. You just told me earlier today you wanted to do nothing on Saturday. Yeah, and I realized just now that I actually am taking Skippy to the vet. My couch is getting delivered. I have someone picking up at least two pieces of furniture that they're buying, and then something else. So, at this point in the 1980s, things are even more chaotic. Nurses and orderlies say that they were abandoned by their superiors, and they're forced to make decisions that, under the law, could only be made by doctors. Regulations about medicine was ignored. Oh, geez. Um, as were their complaints about the dangerous levels of understaffing in a ward that housed the most violent and severely ill patients at Creedmoor. Many mentally ill patients were beaten by orderlies, Jeez. sometimes with weapons. 
patients were sometimes thrown against cinder block walls and roughed up as they were placed into the padded seclusion rooms. Oh my god. Patients were also restrained improperly and sometimes illegally. They were tied near urine-soaked mattresses with adhesive tape on their arms up to the elbow, or placed in straitjackets for hours at a time without approval. And this was in the 80s? This is in the 80s. So the secure unit, where a lot of this happened, opened in 1980. And at the time, at most, 30 men were held in the unit at once. And it was for patients that had a lot of aggression that was, like, very fierce, very uncontrollable. Violent female patients were held uh, throughout the hospital in different areas. So this was just the violent men's ward, basically. Most of these secure unit patients had been diagnosed as schizophrenic, which at the time... They use that term when they didn't know what the cause of someone's mental illness was. They're like, general mental illness, schizophrenia. Oh my god. And the medication use was usually very heavy. So almost to like a sedation level. Right. Over the years, the secure unit became home to self-confessed murderers, rapists, and thieves, which I feel like is not at all in the same level as the other two. No. Murderers, rapists, oh, and thieves. Okay, one of these things is not like the other. Um, And men that were in jail, if they were found insane, would be moved straight to the secure unit from prison. Oh, jeez. And... Despite their mental illnesses, many of these patients had, you know, very normal levels of intelligence and, like, social skills. A typical patient might be lucid one minute and gossiping with a nurse or going through some magazines or reading The New Yorker, just doing whatever. And then the next minute, they might be in a frenzy, breaking furniture, ramming their head against a wall and attempting to maim or kill anyone nearby. The unit's appearance was very deceiving, and at first glance, it almost looked like a daycare center. So there's prints of these Norman Rockwell paintings that have these rosy-cheeked children playing all over the walls, and along the hallways, there's these rows of wicker baskets that have all this plastic ivy flowing out of them, But when you started looking into it, it was not as it seems. Many of these Rockwell paintings had been laminated and then bolted to the wall. What? Some of the chairs and couches in the day rooms were made out of, like, soft rubber foam. The TV that the patients had was placed behind a thick, shatterproof plastic. So all these different ways to make these things to make this look nice and happy. But they're actually just weird and like over safe things because i mean again you know you don't want to have uh you know a a tv that you could easily i don't know punch the screen of and get a shard of glass or whatever but it's just creepy i mean mirrors were not used there because they were fears if you break it get a shard of glass as a weapon right windows that looked out onto the gardens were guarded with heavy wire mesh so like at first look Creedmoor kind of just looks like a shitty college campus, but when you really start looking at things, it just, it's 
very eerie. There were also locked steel doors placed every few feet along the hallway so that staff members could quickly shut them and escape. And at one end of the unit, there were three locked padded seclusion shells that were like 10 foot by 14 foot where they would take patients if they became quote unquote unmanageable. A small plate of safety glass was at the front of each room and it allowed staff members to keep watch on the patients that were in these seclusion cells. So, like, there and, was a door that was shut, and the, but, like, a little glass, like, viewing window? Yeah, I'm picturing something like a, a school door. Yeah. With a little glass thing. Exactly. And over the years, this is fucking creepy and horrifying. Patients had clawed and pounded on the doors and left deep scars in the glass. Oh my god! How gosh. hard it is to scratch glass with your hands. I mean, in my mind, the only thing I can think of on the human body that could scratch glass is bone. And I really don't want to picture that if someone scraped their fingers to the bone or something. Because that, that, to me, that's the only way you could scratch and gouge glass in a room like this. My mind didn't go that dark, but now it's all I can picture. So about 40 people worked in the secure unit. Doctors, nurses, therapy aides, clerical staff, things like that. And it was not considered a good assignment. You did not want to be placed there. Things were toughest for the therapy aides. They were paid the least, about $13,000 a year to start. And they were locked into these day rooms and assigned to keep guard over the patients that they would call clients or inmates. Okay, which is, not, I'm no. like, no, they are patients. They're patients. There's doctors and nurses. You're not, this is not a fucking jail. I would rather them be called clients than inmates. Yeah. So because of the danger that some of these more violent patients could pose, state regulations called for a staff-to-patient ratio in secure unit to be at least... 1.6 to 1. So for every 10 patients there are, there needs to be 16 staff. So a little more than one person per patient. Per patient, yeah. And there are other regulations and other goals. In 1981, the Creedmoor administrators released a 14-page memo that outlined some plans for the ward, and this said that therapy aides would receive special training in self-defense, a crisis intervention team would be formed to handle dangerous patient outbursts. Therapists would hold anger management classes for patients so they could overcome their violence. And patients would be able to work off their aggression with regular outdoor exercise. All of this sounds wonderful. I'm like, yes, this could help a lot of people. But of course, very little came of these, act of these plans. The outdoor exercise never actually took place. Most of the special classes did neither. There was a three-day self-defense seminar for workers that was held in 81, but it was never repeated. In a confidential report on April 4th, 1983, Dr. Man Mohan Singh, who was the unit director, reported that the ward staff have had no particular training in the management of assaultive patients. And to make things worse... The entire unit was understaffed, so they need to have at least 1.6 to 1. Right. 
the actual worker-to-patient ratio was about one-to-one. At least it's not less than one-to-one. I mean, one-to-one is not great, but what if it was, like, 0.2-to-1? Well, true, but you have to remember that even it being one-to-one, that's including all workers. So, Margaret in accounting counts as one of those people. Oh. Tammy Lynn, who's the benefits rep, is one of those people. I mean, it's not just one-to-one doctors or one-to-one nurses. I mean, it's everyone. And also, the state minimum is 1.6 to 1. So the state minimum is saying if you have 10 patients, there needs to be 16 people. Okay, so it's built for 30 people. They're saying they need 48 staff. They have 30. Oh. They're 18 under. So that is drastic. need for the minimum. Realistically, they probably should have 60. They should probably have two staff members per person, per patient. Okay. And they have one. That is very drastic, and yes. Okay, so it's pretty bad. Yeah. The crisis intervention team that was mentioned, it was never formed. And the crises that needed intervention continued, like they always had. Nurses and therapy aides were frequently attacked by patients, and an attack a day was not uncommon. So workers would have broken bones, cuts, bruises, just a bunch of different injuries from patients because no one is being properly trained and no one is getting the proper help this hurts my heart just for like the patients and the staff like it's just like everything is going wrong the patients aren't getting proper care the staff isn't getting support to actually do their jobs and like the people who work at asylums man shout out to them because especially in this time they knew how difficult it was going to be it was it was not hidden how difficult this type of position was. True. But shout out to some of them. Right. There are some people who work there who were doing the horrendous things. But I'm just talking about, like, the nurses who would go there, the people who were trying to keep the place running, the people that were trying to better the The care. The people who wanted to help. Yes. Yeah. So Dr. Stephen Loomis, he's a psychologist and he works in the ward And he was the victim of what he says was nearly a fatal attack one afternoon in May of 1981 when he was manning what was known as the token store. So in the hospital, when patients behaved, they would receive colored paper tokens. So a patient who showed up for an exercise class might get two tokens or, you know, someone who, I don't know, is just doing a great job gets a couple tokens. And these could be exchanged for small gifts, such as three tokens could buy a cigarette, things like that. So Dr. Loomis, he's a psychologist there. He also mans the token store. And while he's in the store, a particularly dangerous patient walks up. And this, and the patient is a big guy. He's at least 200 pounds, at least six foot tall. And this patient was angry. Because he felt he was not getting enough tokens. And shit, when you build a system that, like, is very good behavior equals reward equals you can buy these things. And, like, that's that's your currency. That's your one way to get these good things. I would be fucking pissed if I felt like I was getting cheated. If I felt like I was doing a good job and it's not being seen or whatever. I'm not getting these tokens. Yeah. 
Because in my mind, I see it more of like, you know, if you imagined a work situation where, you know, your coworkers are doing a good job and you get a raise, you get a raise, you have Oprah boss, and you're killing it. And you're like, hey, hello, no raise. Yeah. I'd be fucking pissed. Um, so that's how I'm imagining this. That's to me like one of the only parallels. Not that raises are given out like that. I don't know. They're not. Whatever. But that's honestly not what I was picturing. What I was picturing is that, you know, he goes to his exercise class and he feels like, I don't know, he did extra in that class. So he should get three tokens instead of just two. Like he did better than Mary did. So he deserves more tokens. Or he misses a class but he feels like he has a valid excuse and should still get the tokens. Like, that's how I was picturing it. Oh, okay. That's valid, too. I don't know. It was one of those situations. Regardless. And that was it. The only two options were the two scenarios <laughs> Brittany and I described. But nothing else. Regardless, he's upset and he's going to that token store. He's big store. and scary. And also, again, this is a secure ward. So this is people that often have a history of violence or a history of criminal activity right so it's big muscle dude coming in who's angry has a possible violent past that's that's not some anyone wants to see and dr loomis saw how angry this guy was he decided to call the security office he was like mm, i'm gonna get some backup yes as he's dialing the phone the patient went after another worker who was a friend of Dr. Loomis's. Dr. Loomis was quoted as saying, I dropped the phone and ran to help, and the patient threw me down and started hitting me in the chest. He sat on me, slamming me in the head with his fist. I remember that fist. It was like being hit with a hot baseball bat, and I recall a horrible feeling that I was beginning to lose consciousness. Oh my god. This sounds fucking horrifying. It does. I've never heard someone describe what a fist hitting them was like. A hot baseball bat? Like, for some reason, I can imagine that more than a fist. Yeah. Or also the comparison of the intensity. That's, wow. Okay, I'm creepy. Yeah. So, after several minutes of this attack, this assault happening... Another doctor was able to force the patient off of Dr. Loomis. Dr. Loomis was not able to return to work for two weeks. And five months later, he resigned from the hospital. Don't, he was done. Don't blame him. His friend, who was an occupational therapist who the patient had initially attacked, was a lot more seriously injured. Oh my god, what did the patient do to them? So I, I think like throwing them down, like punching them, things like that, but... This doctor required 12 stitches needed to sew up the cut in his face. And because of the attack, a scar, like a permanent scar, was left running from the corner of his left eye down the side of his nose and across his left cheek. So basically his face was split open. By late 1983, several staff members would say they felt abandoned, that they were left alone to deal with patients whose violence could really only be controlled with a doctor's help and the doctors were refusing to leave their offices and actually see the patients was it because they were afraid it's because they were afraid it's because they're lazy it's because they're assholes probably a combination of all of it honestly yeah they would just be like no 
we're not seeing the patients, and the nurses are like, we need your fucking help. We can't, I can't prescribe, I don't know, Thorazine or whatever. And the doctors are like, mm, figure it out. If we stay in our office, we can't get hurt. And the nurses are probably in their heads plotting to murder these doctors. Don't murder people, but like, understandable. So morale was so low that nurses that had been newly assigned to the secure unit would quit after only a few days and sometimes only a few hours on the job. That's pretty bad. They'd do it and be like, oh, fuck no. I was a nurse in the war. I'm not doing this. I'm out. That tells you something. And basically because of the turnover, because of the no oversight and just the panic and low morale, the stage was set for more violence and more abuse of the patients. So according to staff members, some workers began sneaking weapons into the ward in 1983. For protection or for violence? Both. They'd probably tell people's protection, but they would absolutely use them on patients regardless of what was happening. These weapons included several blackjacks and bamboo poles, so different batons to beat the shit out of people with. And they used them to control patients, is what they said. They were like, we need some way to control them, so we're going to just beat the shit out of them. Yeah, like, that's a great solution. Yeah, some of these patients were, quote-unquote, controlled until they were killed. Roberto Venegas was an aviation mechanic who had immigrated to the U.S. from Colombia, and he'd worked sporadically in the past few years because of his mental illness. He met his wife, Edia, at a family gathering in 1983, and she'd just arrived from Central America, and she wanted to learn English. He offered to help, and they fell in love. And on November 23rd of 1983, they were married. Within just a month, though, he fell ill, and three days after Christmas, he was admitted to Creedmoor. According to hospital records, he had a lengthy history of mental illness. He'd been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic and had been admitted four times to Creedmoor, the first time being in 1973, so four times in the past ten years. After he became violent, he was transferred to the secure unit on February 29th of 1984. Staff members said that he kept screaming that he wanted to kill himself, and several times he attempted to gouge out his own eyes. He would bite and kick at therapy aides who tried to restrain him, and his condition continued to deteriorate until March 5th, which is the day that he was murdered. Several questions about his death remain unanswered to this day, but according to a confidential report by the New York State Commission on the Quality of Care and interviews with investigators, this is what's known about the last 10 hours of his life. So, that morning at 7.45 a.m., because of his agitation, he was placed in a seclusion room, so the stereotypical padded cell. At 10 a.m., he was removed from this room and prepared for a trip up to the medical ward of the hospital. And according to the report, Dr. Hussein, who was an administrator for the hospital, ordered the staff to put him in a straitjacket before they transported him. And the doctor had not examined him that morning. They were just like, oh, we're going to move this guy. And he's like, put a fucking straitjacket on him while sitting in his office. 
And this is probably illegal, first off. State law demanded that a doctor had to examine a patient before authorizing a restraint to see if, you know, they needed it. Granted, in an emergency, there are cases when a patient can be placed in a straitjacket uh, without an examination, but in cases like that, a doctor needs to be there within a half hour. Yeah. Sometime that morning, another patient in the ward, Michael Jenkins, said that two therapy aides, Cecil Hayes and John Walton, hit and kicked Venegas as they placed him into the straitjacket. So they're just beating the shit out of him while putting these restraints on him. And although Jenkins had been diagnosed as a chronic schizophrenic, he was interviewed by two psychiatrists after all of this, and they found him to be completely competent and truthful. He was lucid, he knew what he saw, yeah, and he took notes. He was like, I need to remember this. This is not, this is not normal. This is not okay. Right. Between 10 a.m. and noon, Venegas was transferred to the medical unit in a wheelchair. Again, still in the straitjacket. A doctor removed some dead skin from his lower lip, and they had an x-ray scheduled, but they didn't do it because Venegas had been agitated, and so they just returned him to the secure unit instead of x-raying him. What? So he's got, like, injuries in his body that they're not seeing? Yeah. They're like, well, he's acting out, so back to the cell. At one fifteen that afternoon, a nurse, Lena Beckett, heard screaming. And so she rushes in, she enters the ward with a therapy aide, Albert Frederick, and the two of them found two therapy aides, Haynes from earlier, and then Willie Satterthwaite, sitting on Venegas. So Venegas is in his straitjacket, and he's lying on his back on a couch. And the two therapy aides are just sitting on him, sweating profusely. And Nurse Beckett is like, get the fuck off of him. And so they they got off of him. And it's not like they had to try to extra restrain him or something. He's already in a straitjacket. And again, he's been in a straitjacket since that morning. And while Haynes is sitting on his chest, his right hand is just pressing on Venegas' neck and chest. And any time Venegas tried to, like, rise and get up, he's just pressing on his neck, holding him down. So Nurse Beckett left the ward and went straight to Dr. Hussein, and she's explaining to them the emergency that's going on. And so he's like, okay, put a double restraint on him. And... A, this double restraint is basically a cloth that's tied over the straitjacket. What is the need for something over a straitjacket? You can't do anything. I have no idea. Basically, the only thing you can do in a straitjacket is rock forward or backward. Yeah. And this makes sure you can't do that either. So Hussein authorized this and said that he'd be over shortly to see the patient. Again, Another thing to note, double restraints are usually forbidden and illegal. And to use one, Dr. Hussein would have needed special approval from the Office of Mental Health. And he didn't even reach out to them. He was like, ah, time up. So at about 1.45 in the afternoon, Venegas, who is still in the straitjacket, is placed in a chair against a column. And then this restraining sheet is tied around his waist and around the column in this chair tied up to it. 
in a straitjacket. Which, first off, if someone is aggravated and terrified and scared and angry, tying them up and tying them to a chair to a column is not going to help. That's going to make them panic. Yeah. Sometime that afternoon, Haynes, the orderly, continued beating Finnegas. And at one point, he picked up a blackjack or a baton or club and struck Venegas in the neck, in the throat. That could, like, damage your trachea and your windpipe, like, everything. And it did. An autopsy report showed that Venegas had died from asphyxiation caused by a crushed throat. Oh my god. And marks on his neck were consistent with a blow from the blackjack. So at 3.30 p.m. that afternoon, Dr. Hussein left for the day and never saw Venegas. He was done. It's 3.30. He's like, deuces, I'm out. And Venegas died after that. Yeah. So in leaving, Hussein violated so many regulations that require a doctor in a state psychiatric center to respond to an emergency within a half hour. Yeah. So at about 5 p.m., Nurse Beckett comes in and she feeds Venegas, who was still in a straitjacket. He ate some pureed food and he sipped on about a half pint of milk through a straw. She then leaves to go get him some medicine uh, that he needs to, you know, take after dinner. And she comes back at 5.05, so just a couple minutes later, and he's slumped forward. His eyes and mouth are open. He's pale and he has no pulse. Oh my god, Do you, did he like choke on his food that he was eating, or? I'm not sure, I don't think so. I think just he had the damage to his trachea, and so he was able to eat. But then it just, and then it just collapsed. Yeah, so it took about five to ten minutes to get the straight jacket off of him, and even though the nurses and the therapy aides knew that his heart had stopped, they made no effort to give him CPR over the straitjacket, which, as anyone knows, and anyone who has been to the hospital or anything, CPR is literally the first thing you do, and you continue to do it if someone's heart stops. Yes. That is lesson number one. While they're getting the straitjacket off, there needs to be someone giving CPR through the straitjacket, and then it's like, okay, time to lift it off. You lift it off real quick, and you continue CPR. Yep. That's how it works. But they didn't. And it was said that there was a possibility if CPR had been given, he might have lived. But at 5.45pm, he was pronounced dead. And this was from the collapsed trachea from being struck in the throat with the baton. So this was the staff, like, bringing these weapons in for quote-unquote protection. And they ended up murdering someone who was not a threat. Then beating the shit out of this person who's already double restrained and can't hurt anyone, can't do anything. Yeah. Beat the shit out of him and murder him. So a series of budget cuts and dwindling patient populations led to the closing of a bunch of these so-called farm colonies across the U.S. And it had a marked decline at Creedmoor. Today, the campus continues to be open and operate, and it houses just a few hundred patients, and it also provides uh, outpatient services, and it's just trucking along, trying to leave its very turbulent, very fucked up past behind. I'm really surprised it's still open. It's still open. 
if you go to a psychiatric hospital and you are in the Queens area of New York, you will probably go to this one. I wonder how they get around their history and are still open. Like, this just seems like an impossibility. Honestly, it's the power of branding. Like, I looked at their website just to see what I could find, if they had an about us or anything. Nothing. And obviously you don't want to talk about how, like, oh, well, 30 years ago we killed the guy who was here. Right. You know, but nothing. And then even looking at, like, the Wikipedia page did not go into detail, which blew my mind. Wow. Because Wikipedia usually loves diving into the fucked upness of places. Of course. But didn't have a ton of info there. I mean, it really was diving into these articles, especially the New York Times article. Right. That really showed just how fucked up things were there. Yeah. And that is the case of the murdery history of the Creedmoor Asylum. There is so much to unpackage there. Yeah. Like, I know you only skimmed the surface of everything that happened. That's horrifying. I'm still, like, stuck on the fact that they're still open. Oh, yeah. Um, I strongly suggest reading the New York Times article. Um, It goes into a lot more detail on, like, Dr. Hussein and the shit that he was doing in his past. It's literally just a building of nightmares. That's exactly what it sounds like. So, tell me about your asylum case. Okay, I will. Um, I will say ours share some very unfortunate similarities. My case is about Athens Lunatic Asylum, which was truly the name it was given first. It went through a lot of name changes, but that was the first one. Shit. So the sources I used, I used two articles from Wikipedia. One was titled Athens Lunatic Asylum. And the second was Kirkbride Plan. I also used the article from the lineup. So five insane asylums you never want to find yourself lo- locked up in by Audrey Webster. Oh, hey, I think that might be the first time we've used the same source. Probably. But at this point, I yeah, it's bound to happen. I know. I'm surprised it has not happened already. Right? So the next one I used, I'm going to edit the title just a little bit. Body of Margaret Schilling by Jim H. from Paranorms.com. Haunted Athens Asylum for the Insane, Ohio, from Legends of America, and the Walter Jackson Friedman II page on Britannica by Kara Rogers. The Athens Lunatic Asylum was a Kirkbride Plan mental hospital operated in Athens, Ohio from 1874 until 1993. So, like, 120 years was how long this hospital was in operation. Damn. This Kirkbride plan design was advocated by a Philadelphia psychiatrist, Thomas Story Kirkbride. And these hospitals were designed by Dr. Kirkbride, and they were contingent on his theories regarding the healing of the mentally ill, in which the environment and exposure to natural light and air circulation were crucial. So I'm betting that your asylum was also a Kirkbride plant asylum. And when you went into the detail about, you know, the labor, etc., that's very similar mm. to um, what I found with Athens. So... The hospitals built, according to this Kirkbride plan, would adapt various architectural styles, but they had in common this bat wing style floor plan, and they would house numerous wings that would sprawl outward from the center, so kind of like a bat wing, and they were in this very lavish Victorian architecture. So, like, these buildings are gorgeous. 
These Kirkbride plan asylums, they occupy a very unique niche in the culture. More than 70 were built across the United States, and 25 of them are still surviving today, as of 2019. They've appeared in films and television, and they've been the subjects of very notable photographers, and they've also inspired some fictional locations, such as the Arkham Asylum in Batman and the Parsim State Insane Asylum in Fallout 4. So this style, it is something that we associate either consciously or subconsciously with an insane asylum. Yeah, it's it's kind of the prototypical asylum. Exactly. During its operation, Athens provided services to a variety of patients, including Civil War veterans, children, the elderly, homeless, rebellious teenagers being taught a lesson by their parents, and violent criminals suffering from various mental and physical disabilities. So, uh... I'm... Yeah. I'm sorry. I know. You teach your teenage child who's rebelling, who's who's what? They're, they're kissing? They're, they were sitting in a car with a boy? So you take them to an asylum? I mean, you learn... Did you what? You caught them masturbating? And you're like, well, this will teach you not to touch your penis. Asylum. I mean, you read your research. You know that's accurate. I know it is, but Jesus. Yeah. Mainly, the asylum was best known for its practice of lobotomy, but it's also known to have practiced hydrotherapy, electroshock, restraint, and psychotropic drugs, many of which have been found to be harmful today. Yeah, those all sound like torture. They do. Um, Athens Lunatic Asylum has patients far over its capacity, so similar to like you were saying, they had way too many for most of its functioning years. Mm -hmm. This overcrowding caused the care for each patient to decrease until the hospital began abusing its patients. The fact that ours have these similarities, it's super disturbing. But it seems to be the overarching history of a lot of these asylums that were built in the early 1900s, late 1800s. Yeah. I mean, it's these patients that are victims because they are disenfranchised because they're not in a position where they can call the police about this abuse or talk to families because a lot of times not only would people not believe them because, oh, you're in the asylum, you're crazy. Yeah. Everything you say is made up. But, I mean, they're essentially imprisoned. They are. There. So who gives a shit what they're going through? Unfortunately. And it's so messed up. It is. Many of these Kirkbride plan asylums functioned as communities. So for decades, Athens had livestock, farm fields and gardens, an orchard, greenhouses, a dairy, a physical plant to generate steam heat, and even a carriage shop. So like yours, a lot of these jobs that were there to maintain the facility were carried out by the patients. They were given to them. Labor, especially the skilled labor, was seen by the Kirkbride plan as a form of therapy, and it was obviously very economically advantageous for the state. Like, yeah. they had patients unpaid doing the work. Like, Oh yeah, it's it's free labor. Perfect. It's exactly what they want. It's why we have private prisons today. I know, and it's sick because at the time, it really was seen as therapeutic for them. But you look at it from like a lens of now, and it's like, no, come on, that's free labor. That's fucked up. Just like it is now. Or like the prisoners who are being paid to work today are being paid pennies on the dollar 
for the same if job they're, if they're paid. Yeah, if they're being paid, there's a handful of states, I know Texas included, that don't have a minimum wage for prisoners. That this is this is your job. You're basically literally it is slave labor. It is. Because you are forced to do this work to create this product for someone else with punishment being the alternative. You know, you can't say no, I don't want to do this work because you have to. You have to. And I am very pro a minimum wage for prisoners because of the fact that different things like being able to call your family or even have people come visit or buy shit from the commissary in any place you can't do. Yeah. Unless you have people sending you money and the prison or the wire transfer company, whichever you go through, takes a shit ton of a cut from it and you're just, you're fucked. And I'm like, no, if you're putting in work, if you're creating product, you need to get paid. That's literally the foundation of how work works. It is. And in your case, we're not even talking about people in prison. No. We're not even talking about people who have done a crime they've been convicted for and working. They're talking about patients who are there to get help, who are there to get better. And again, it's fucking using slave labor. Yeah. But at the time, again, they thought it was therapeutic. It was giving them a means. It was giving them a purpose. But that's not the reality. No. So the asylum expanded to include specialized and ancillary buildings, such as the Dairy Barn, Beacon School, Athens Receiving Hospital, Center Hospital, and the Tubercular Ward, which was also known as Cottage B. Also, on the main building, they built an extension where a laundry room and a boiler house were. In total, seven cottages, which this includes Cottage B, the tubercular ward, they were constructed to house even more patients. And they had a much smaller capacity than the main wards, but they allowed for groupings of patients in this, like, dorm-like room. So bunk beds, multiple people is what I'm picturing. This just horrifyingly sounds like, similar to my case, like a bad college. It does. Uh, Trust me, it's going to get worse. By the 1950s, the hospital was the town's largest employer. They had 1,800 patients on a 1,000-acre, 78-building campus. So it, it grew really quickly. But back in the beginning, the very first patient that they had at Athens was a 12-year-old girl with epilepsy, thought to be possessed by a demon. Again, this was the 1870s. Oh my god. That's just so messed up. It is, but again, and again, I'm not trying to defend them, but I want to make sure we're all looking at this through the lens of they literally didn't know. Oh, I agree. You know, it's it's something that is not going to be known until medical and technological, scientific, whatever advancement gets there. But this is a 12-year-old girl who has seizures. I know. Like, nowadays, we have... Very easy to get medication. I know. It's like, oh, you have epilepsy? Oh, here, here's, you know, phenobarbital. Here's whatever. Uh, and they're like, oh, she's possessed by the devil. Take her to the asylum. Exactly. Well, epilepsy was considered one of the major causes of insanity and a reason to go to the asylum in these early years. The first annual report lists 31 men and 19 women as having their insanity caused by epilepsy. 
again, this is in Ohio. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's a ton of people in Ohio in the late 1800s. That seems like a pretty significant amount of people for just this one cause. That's not in the whole asylum. That's just for epilepsy. And that's just in this this one asylum, because you know there's definitely going to be one in Cincinnati and one in Dayton and one, you know, in the bigger cities. This is just in Athens, the town you've never heard of. Sorry to anyone from Athens. Yeah. But it's a small town. I've never heard of it. General ill health accounted for the admission of 39 men and 44 women in the first three years of the hospital's operation. Additionally, ailments such as menopause, alcohol addiction, and tuberculosis were caused for enrollment in the hospital. Menopause? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Literally a natural thing that every woman goes through for the most part. I mean, I know some women have to have a hysterectomy and they don't naturally go through menopause, but they still go through a form of it. So this is somewhat something every woman at a certain age experiences. And for the female patients hospitalized during the first three years of the asylum's operation, the three leading causes of insanity are recorded as puriparal condition, which that's when your body, um, after you have a baby, your organs like go back to the non-pregnant state. And that causes you to go to an asylum because... My, my oh, guess because... is postpartum depression would probably be a part of this. And there were 51 women with this in the first three years. Change of life, 32 women. And menstrual derangements, 29 women. Which to me, I'm like, okay, that's hormones. Literally all of these are like hormones. It makes me so mad how sexist medicine is and even to this day like literally the fact that a lot of doctors medical students aren't taught people in general aren't taught the symptoms of a heart attack for women because it's different for a heart attack in men and women and the classic like oh my left arm hurts oh pain in my chest it's like oh that's a heart attack whereas For women, indigestion is a big, like, heavy indigestion. Different signs like that, because your bodies are fucking different. But medicine is so sexist, because historically, it's been something where any kind of research is done on male patients. So it's like, oh, these are the signs. These are the symptoms. Must be the same for women, because they're totally the exact same. And it's like, no, people's bodies are different. People's hormones are different. And they're just... So many women who have died or gone through horrible shit because medicine is just focused on how does X affect the male body. And it's fucking bullshit. I've honestly never thought about it that way. And that's a really um, astute perspective because you're right. Men and women's bodies are completely different. And especially a woman who is going through her monthly cycle or... Pregnancy, childbirth, menopause, these are things that affect the body. And these poor women were being sent to the insane asylum. Like, women who had postpartum depression or hysteria, as they called it, they were labeled insane and sent to the asylum to recover. And that would never happen for men having hormone changes. Or even, like, just for example, a man would never be sent to an asylum for erectile dysfunction. Exactly. But that's on the... That's just just not a thing that would happen. But that's on the same playing field as to why so many women were sent. Yeah. 
The second most common cause for insanity was intemperance and dissipation. So basically, intemperance, you don't really have restraint or moderation of things. And dissipation, you're distracted. You know, maybe you're not super present. So, I mean, I don't know. To me, if I would label this in like modern terms, it's like addiction and ADD. 56 men and one woman were diagnosed as having their insanity caused by this intemperance and dissipation during this same time period. But also in the first three years of operation, 81 men and one woman were diagnosed as having their insanity caused by masturbation. So apparently men are getting caught jerking off like way more than women because we all do it. so stupid. I know. Everyone should masturbate. It's healthy. It's natural. It totally is. One of the things that Athens is most notable for is its famed physician, Dr. Walter Jackson Freeman II. That's a name. Yeah, it's a name. Uh, Dr. Freeman was the father of the lobotomy. He called it a cure-all for every mental illness, and he introduced it to the United States. A prefrontal lobotomy is an operation in which the destruction of neurons and neuronal tracts in the white matter of the brain, and it was considered therapeutic for patients with mental disorders. In 1935, Portuguese neurophysician Antonio Igas Moniz, with the help of Portuguese surgeon Pedro Amiria Limba, modified a surgical technique for the prefrontal cortex in the frontal lobe of the brain and tested it on a human subject. So in 1936, Freeman took Moniz's technique and he modified it describing his version of the operation as the lobotomy Mm, don't fuck with people's brains did you know jfk's sister had a lobotomy no she was lobotomized because probably because she had her period or something or maybe she masturbated and they lobotomized her she says rosemary kennedy i didn't know that that is one of those historical things that i think they try to bury absolutely By 1945, Freeman had begun to lose confidence in the effectiveness of the standard lobotomy, and so he set to work to refine a procedure known as a transorbital lobotomy, which was not only less expensive and faster than the standard lobotomy, but Freeman believed that it was more effective, which, I mean, that sounds just way too convenient to me. Yeah, more effective, cheaper. Easier. It's the Walmart lobotomy. Well, no. literally, it it sounds like freaking something that would happen in a Saw movie. So the operation was performed by forcing a thin tube through the bony orbit of the back of the eye socket. Oh, <laughs> fuck. I have oh, to repeat that. God. I was laughing because of your face. That just distracted me in the camera. You're like cringing so hard right now. I'm sorry, this is literally my worst nightmare. It's a tube going, like, fucking through or under or anywhere near your eye into your brain to just mess everything up. It's awful. Oh, honey, it's about to get worse. So, uh, prep yourself. Uh, So they would have this tube there, and they would inject alcohol into the frontal lobe through the tube in your eye. But instead of this tube and alcohol method, Freeman's instrument of choice to penetrate through the bone was initially an ice pick. Oh, no. First off, bad use of the word penetrate. Um, Second off, an ice pick? 
Like, not even like, ooh, let's use this surgical instrument. It's similar. They're like, mm, fishermen in Alaska use this. Let's shove it into someone's face. Basically. I mean, this wasn't even something that was a tube. Like, there was no hole. It was a goddamn ice pick. <sighs> Later, though, he did have a special instrument designed. And he would use this instrument and manipulate by hand, to destroy the neuronal tracts in the brain that were thought to give rise to mental illness. So essentially, the the end thing that was happening, like destroying these tracts, was the same as this original lobotomy. But again, like I said, his was cheaper and faster. Oh my god, he's literally just scrambling, like actually scrambling the front of your brain. Exactly. He's literally sticking an ice pick through your eye socket, stirring your brain out a little bit, and pulling it out. That is something that, like, the mafia would hear about and be like, whoa, bro, that's too fucked up. We're not- Literally- That's messed up. The idea that even with medicine being early at this time, the idea that you think you could stick an instrument in someone's body and stir it around and that's going to be okay is literally the most asinine thing I've ever heard. I mean, like, y'all barely know anything about anything. You're like, hmm, why do people get sick? I don't know. Let me dip my hands in manure and then just start doing some surgery. Maybe I should shove an ice pick into someone's brain and it'll make them healthy. Like, oh my god, do you check yourself. I know. In January 1946, he performed his first transorbital lobotomy procedure, and it was done on a depressed and violent 29-year-old woman. Bitch me. The procedure was deemed a success, and the patient was able to return to a relatively normal life. So that's what's very interesting about the lobotomy. Some people, what it would happen, and it would kind of just make them zone out. Like, they were still alive, but maybe a little checked out. And I feel like then other people would just die. It Because it yeah. was so... The procedure, looking back, and, and from my non-medical perspective... But it feels like it's totally hit or miss. Like you're yeah. sticking an ice pick up someone's eye socket and hoping you're stirring the right parts and not nicking something that's going to kill them. Well, and it's also for stupid shit. It's like, this person's sad. Let's try this. I'm like, okay, you know what would be better? Doing nothing. Doing anything but that. Don't do it. So he was obviously a very controversial figure because of this. And... While he was at Athens, he performed over 200 lobotomies, which is an... Oh my god. So many more than I would ever like to imagine. One is bad enough. Yeah. So. I know. I also need a drink of wine. Yeah. I, I paused for a sip because, oh my gosh, um, I'm about to go into even more. And honestly, I know there is so much more I could have um, dived into with a lobotomy, but honestly, that was enough. For me to stomach. Yeah. It was borderline um, too much. I cannot really think of any medical procedure that's this violent, this traumatic, this brutal. I mean, like, even amputate, you know, bite down on this wooden block, I'ma amputate your arm. I will lose an arm. Don't fuck up my brain. Don't stir my brain. That's me. That's all I am, is my brain. It's so violent. It is. The violence of it, and, and I... I feel like your soul is in your brain, you know, because that's how you know things. That's yeah. kind of your your entity begins there. 
I know we... Yeah, that's all you are, is your brain. I know we need other things, but, like, our body is formed in a way, you know, you can function with one kidney. You can function without some of the stuff that's in there, which honestly makes me think, like, why is it there? But, you know what? Sometimes you have a spare in case someone else needs it. I mean, if you think about it, it's the one thing that with modern medicine, you cannot transplant and still be you. Right. You can get a heart transplant... Lungs, kidneys, skin, face. You can all get that transplanted and you're still you. You can't do that with the brain. Because that's, at its very core, your brain is you. And to damage and destroy it like a lobotomy does? Like, what the fuck? I know. And destroying it just hurts me. Because you've heard about the people who can have a portion of their brain removed. And the brain is so powerful it can regenerate itself. I mean, not necessarily like the liver by any means. It doesn't fill in the space, but it does with like fluids. Yeah. But you are still able to function. And that's not all parts of the brain. It's just certain parts. No. And it's something that definitely is, especially in children, like when your body and your brain is still forming. Totally. But that's different than stirring it up and poking it around. Yeah. So. Ugh. Oh my god, stir up any other part of me. Like, literally knife me in the, I don't know, intestines and make it smoothie. Basically. Don't do that to my brain. Don't stir any of my body. Stir nothing in me. Well, I mean that too. (laughs) I don't like to be stirred. Okay. God, me at 6am on a weekday. (laughs) To my alarm, I don't like to be stirred. Okay, so like you mentioned, in the 1950s, the mental health care industry in the United States underwent, like, a big change. Research began to show that the mentally ill did not pose an inherent danger to their communities. And the public was becoming increasingly aware of all these procedures, such as the electroshock and the lobotomy. And they would start to see this as very cruel and unnecessary and inhumane. Which I'm like, yeah, hello... It is Mm -hmm. the ability of psychoactive drugs for the treatment of mental illness, as well as the increasing prevalence of psychological therapy allowed for most of the patients to be treated without the need for going into a prison-like institution. In the 1960s, the total square footage of Athens was recorded to be 660,888 square feet. Oh my god. And it was at this time that its population peaked at nearly 2,000 patients, which was over three times its capacity. It had been designated to hold about 500. So... Yours... Oh my god. Yours uh, went over this even more. And, And same with Athens. They had additional buildings, but Still, way overcrowded. Yeah. Even though there were several patients, there still happened to be a lot of wings and entire floors, which remained untouched, unrenovated, as the years went by. Ooh, that's just creepy on a different level. It is. It's, they're just these empty wings. Is it weird that I'm picturing, when you say wings, I'm picturing like, a nursing home with, like, the central desk and, like, hangout area and then the different hallways splitting off so it's like a big old X. No, because I think that's exactly what it is. I'm picturing that, but darker. Like, everything's kind of gray and black. I mean, yeah, I'm picturing that, but bad. Yeah. Nursing homes are good things. Yes. Generally. 
1977, Athens made news when it housed multiple personality rapist Billy Milligan. This was a very highly publicized court case, and Milligan was found to have committed several felonies, including armed robbery, kidnapping, and three rapes on the campus of Ohio State University. In the course of preparing his defense, psychologists diagnosed Milligan with multiple personality disorder, and doctors said that he had suffered from this from early childhood. He was the very first person diagnosed with multiple personality disorder to raise such a defense, and the first acquitted of a major crime for this reason. So, this was actually a big case for so many reasons. Like, not only was his mental illness a factor, it actually got him acquitted. Yeah. He was then sent to Athens. While he was at the hospital, Milligan reported having 10 different personalities. Later, 14 more personalities were said to have been discovered. So I'm like, dude has 24, 25 personalities, if you count, like, I don't know, his original yeah. one. Um, huh. Which, my God, that's so many to keep up with. I know, that's what I was saying. Like, that's a lot, just a lot to keep track of. Like, I'm impressed with do you that. you have to write it down? Yeah, I'm impressed with that record keeping to know, like, okay, we've literally got 25 different millions here. Yeah, well, and I mean, today, like, multiple personality disorder is a thing. Today it's known as dissociative identity disorder, I believe. DID is the correct terminology. But that's just so much. And it's so difficult with a lot of mental illnesses. If you don't experience something similar to it or something like it, it's so difficult, I think, to grasp the reality of, like, you know, what is having multiple personalities, multiple people living within you, basically. Like, how do you picture that? How do you explain that to someone? Right. After a decade, Milligan was discharged, and he eventually died of cancer at a nursing home in Columbus, Ohio, on December 12th, 2014. And at that time, he was 59 years old. Oh, oh. For some reason, I pictured he would be much older. No. I mean, he was there in 1977. Yeah, oh. While there were hundreds of deaths when Athens was open, the most famous is that of Margaret Schilling. So in 1978, just a year after all the Milliken stuff hit the news, Athens was in the news again when a patient named Margaret Schilling disappeared on December 1st. Oh, that's not good. People don't just disappear. Well, it wasn't until January 12th, 1979, 42 days later, that her body was discovered by a maintenance worker in a locked and long abandoned tuberculosis ward that was once used for patients with that infectious illness. No. Tests showed that she died of heart failure, but she was found completely naked with her clothing neatly folded next to her body. But what is even more interesting in this case is this permanent stain that her body left behind. You can clearly see an imprint of her hair and her body on the floor. No. It's believed that this stain was caused by her body decaying combined with the way the sunlight was hitting her body in the process. Although there have been so many attempts to clean it up and remove the stain, it's still there. Which I don't even know how to comprehend a stain that stays on concrete like that. 
I don't, I mean, I literally don't have a reaction. I'm just horrified. There's a lot of myths surrounding her story. Some people believe she was a deaf mute who found herself locked in the upstairs wing after getting separated from the staff. Supposedly, she couldn't call out for help, and instead, she slowly died in the room all alone. Mm. However, in reality, she was most likely just someone with mental disabilities who managed to get lost, locked herself in an empty ward, and was unable to escape. If your facility where you're housing patients or housing people in general is big enough and unguarded enough that someone can literally just go to a different area and get trapped and die because it's abandoned, you need to get rid of that shit. And first off, to the idea of her, oh, she's deaf and she's mute, so she couldn't communicate. She can still yell. Most people that are mute still have vocal cords. Yeah. I mean, maybe they can't enunciate sounds, but you could still make some sounds. And even if she didn't, she can bang on things. She can make noise. Well. I don't know. This just seems more sinister than just she got lost. I know. But if it's an abandoned wing and no one is in ear sight. I don't know what that is, but. <laughs> Earshot? Earsight is when your ears see things. If no one's in earshot, then, yeah. I mean, you can scream all you want, but no one can hear you, which is one of the scariest things. They say that in all the horror movies, like, you can scream all you want, but no one will hear you. That's terrifying. I guess maybe I just don't have the constitution of a lot of people, but in that situation, I'd be like, all right, deuces, I'm out. That is my worst fear, is, like, just being trapped somewhere. Oh, I know. We talked about it earlier. Like, no. being locked somewhere, like, involuntarily. Like, hell no. Yeah. No. Straight up, absolutely not. By 1981, the hospital housed fewer than 300 patients. So that's down from being, like, super fucking overcrowded to under. Yeah. Numerous buildings stood abandoned, and over 300 acres were transferred to Ohio University. In 1988... The facilities and grounds, um, excluding the cemeteries that were there, they were deeded from the Department of Mental Health to Ohio University. Is Ohio University in Athens? Yeah. Oh, I guess I don't think about Ohio University. Sorry to any Ohio University graduates, we still love you, but I always think of Ohio State. So the Athens Center officially closed in 1993, and the remaining patients were transferred to another facility. The property stood vacant for several years before restoration started, and the name was changed from Athens to Ridges, and in 2001, renovation work was completed on the main building, which is now known as Lynn Hall. Today, their main building houses music, geology, biotechnology, the storage facilities, as well as the Kennedy Museum of Art. So it's literally a college campus now so a couple things first off that is a lot of random colleges and schools in one building and two sketch that we talked about earlier how rosemary kennedy was lobotomized like a lot of things happened here and then it's named after one of the kennedys i know and i don't know the background of that but I don't know. Over the years, these buildings were remodeled and put to use by the university, but there's still a lot of them that are still abandoned. 
That's just so creepy. I know. And, like, knowing that the building you're in used to be an insane asylum, to me, would be reason enough not to go to that university. Sorry again to those who went. Yeah. But that creeps me out. Like, we went to a college where there was an asylum still open, not called an asylum, it was Griffin Memorial Hospital, but it was, you know, outside of campus, but still close enough to where there were stories. This is literally buildings that used to be an asylum that closed down because of all the stuff they were doing. You're going to like, oh, I'm going to, I don't know, Trumpets 1113. I don't know, whatever classes (laughs) in that building. Trumpets. That's just the title. And you're you're going, hmm, wow, people were tortured in this room. Yeah. So obviously it comes as no surprise that the buildings of this historic asylum are allegedly haunted. One of the most famous ghosts is obviously that of Margaret Schilling. Her spirit is said to have appeared staring down from the window of the room where her body was found. It's been seen attempting to escape and has been known to wander various parts of the building at night. And according to some people, she's not alone. She's not the only one. Other former patients are said to remain in residence with reports from visitors seeing strange figures standing in the empty wings of the former hospital hearing disembodied voices and squeaking gurneys. That's creepy, the gurneys. Um, Yeah. Seeing strange lights and hearing screams echoing through the walls. Oh, my God. Even more frightening is that there are rumors of spirits of patients who remained shackled in the basement. So these mini spirits are thought to be those who died or suffered at the hands of the staff at the asylum. Oh, fuck no. So... I mean, I I don't believe in ghosts, but I will say, if I was a ghost, I would travel. I'd haunt some airplanes, go go to Europe, travel Southeast Asia as a ghost. Haunt, like, the big tourist spots, like the Eiffel Tower, the Coliseum, mainly the Coliseum. <gasps> Ooh, I'd haunt Bondi Beach, get myself a ghost tan. I would live the life as a ghost, because, like, ghosts don't have to pay money. Oh my god, what if there's ghost capitalism? That's a whole thing I don't want to dig into. That's that's not but. real. Okay. But I will say, how creepy would it have been if the main building had been turned into a dorm instead of, like, classrooms? I agree. <laughs> no. I would be like, yo, I don't want to actually move into Murdoch Hall because uh, my roommate's a ghost. So I'm actually going to go to uh, Stevens Hall down the way. I know it's like shared bathrooms on the floor. I don't get my private suite, but, like, don't have a ghost roommate, so trade-offs. Yeah, yeah, you you know, you pick and choose. But, um, so that's the history of Athens Lunatic Asylum. Shit. Yeah. Y'all, asylums are... There is so much more detail that we didn't go into. I feel like we covered a lot. Oh, yeah. But it is so unimaginable, the things that were going on in asylums. And again, there is that lens of, oh, they didn't know. But at a certain point, it's like, okay, you're beating someone and busting their trachea, you know. Yeah. The thing is, we didn't know medical knowledge wasn't there yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At some point, you're still committing crimes against humanity. And you're fucking torturing people. And that's pretty obvious. Whether or not you want to justify it on yourself or not, you're a monster. Yeah. Well, with that, you want to hop into postmortem? Let's do it. So, I think 
your case is the more intense one. It had the lobotomies. It just, it's so messed up. It, your entire, the entire time you were telling your story, I was just like curling up in my seat. I'm horrified. Please no one touch me. I will punch you. Honestly, I'm going to disagree with you because yes, Mine was very messed up. Like, obviously, this topic in general, it's about something in our society that was done very wrong for a very long time. But with yours, there was an actual murder that happened. The overcapacity of yours, like, I thought mine, where I was like, oh, it was built for 500 and they had 2,000. And you're like, hey, uh, this place was built for like 100 people and it had 7,000. And I'm like, excuse me? Literally, where do you put the people? And the fact that the staff at yours, granted, I know the staff at mine was also doing these things, but yours killed someone that literally didn't, and maybe it's just the information we have, but he really wasn't doing anything. He was no harm. He was double restrained. But I do think the biggest thing as to why I think yours was more intense is that Creedmoor is still open. At least Athens was closed and, you know, transitioned into a university, so they're able to use those buildings. It's like recycling in a creepy way. But Creedmoor is still active. And it has this history that, I mean, to be completely honest, if I had a family member who needed to go to a mental hospital, that is one of the last ones I would want to take them to. Because of that history. It's like literally think about those fucking Yelp reviews. If if in the early 1900s they had Yelp reviews. The Yelp reviews. Like those are not. Re- and don't even get me started on the Google reviews. But like literally if you look at it from a 2019 perspective. If they had had that at that time. It would have so many negative reviews. Like oh yeah so and so my brother was killed while living there by the staff. Or like hey uh. My husband is sleeping in a twin bed with four people because it's so overcrowded. Like, was beat to shit because I decided to have my period, apparently. Food was okay, though. Two stars. But it's literally the fact that it's still open was what um, turned me, like, that that went over the edge for me. Where I was like, nope, okay. Honestly, I'll, yeah, I'll agree with this. I think your perspective on mine... Both of these cases, though, so messed up, so horrible. I think how we treat mentally ill people and asylums and all that is one of the darkest chapters in not only, like, our nation's history, but, like, our history of humanity as a whole. Honestly, we have more dark chapters than bright chapters, which is terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to be super pessimistic, but... There are so many dark chapters in our history as humans. When you stack everything where it's like, here's the really fucking crazy stuff from like literally this day and time. Here's the crazy, like, we didn't know what we were doing. This is so inhumane with the, this was great, wonderful advancement. The inhumane, I'm sure it topples the other. Oh, yeah. Well, because basically every advancement every thing that we did that we're like yes this is great i mean by basis happens because things were not great i know 
because things were fucked up. It's literally... And then you just add in all just the extra fucked up. It's literally like a kindergartner on a seesaw with a senior in high school. Like, obviously, you know which which side's gonna weigh more. God, but all we can do is try our best to help the, in this metaphor, help the kindergartner gain weight. <laughs> Feed them. I don't know. <laughs> Feed the child on the seesaw? I don't know, but I agree. Yeah. So, um, okay, I'll, um... I do nothing. Okay. Do my research for the next episode. I'll pick the topic. But um, uh, thank y'all so much for tuning in, for listening to us. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you haven't so far. Your reviews really help us uh, move up into the rankings and help a bunch of other people like yourselves who really enjoy us find us, listen to it, fall in love with us. It's my dream, people <laughs> falling in love with me. And with that, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Check out our Patreon. Check out our merch store. Guys, we still have some amazing t-shirts, mugs, dog bandanas. And we have a tote bag, which I use it all the time. It's constructed really well. But yeah. So with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.